السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله أما بعد Brothers and sisters in Islam Welcome to another Facebook live conversation uh, On a very important and timely topic of COVID-19 But specifically on the question of the Islamic perspective um, And political implications COVID-19 is a multifaceted consideration um, And there are many angles to this discussion uh, today we're going to focus on one particular aspect, which are which is the Islamic perspectives. Um, there will be subsequent conversations uh, announced over the next couple of days, inshallah, where we'll be emphasizing the political implications of COVID um, and some of the political considerations around it, about uh, international order, about um, the geopolitics of, of events like this, um, and how various state actors uh, seek to exploit or undermine um, our responses to um, uh, pressing considerations like COVID. Now, before every before anyone suggests, um, you know, and before I'm slapped with a section 52, this discussion was announced as a conversation between two, myself and brother Ramzi Abu Yusuf. Um, you will notice, of course, that um, it's only me today, um, and this is not by choice. Alhamdulillah. Uh, in the circumstances in which we operate today, um, it is prudent of all of us to exercise caution, um, even when sometimes it may not be warranted, um, but it's better to be on the safe side. Now, Ramsey has uh, indicated that he has a slight, uh, he feels slightly fatigued, um, and of course he's adamant, as we are sure it is the case, inshallah, that is nothing but something that uh, we all experience through um, exertion of effort. But in the circumstances of COVID, um, we both agree that it would be best if we did not take the risk. Um, we pray, of course, we make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that it is nothing more than simply fatigue. People get tired, we all get tired. And inshallah, there's nothing more than that. We wish you a very swift recovery. Uh, Ramzi, <clears throat> on the discussion itself, let's talk about what we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to look at um, the fact that we need to take this issue seriously, first and foremost. We're also going to look at the Islamic perspective on the issue of plagues, specifically. And we're going to look at Islamic positions or Islamic perspectives on uh, the concept of trials and tests in life. Um, and then we're going to zero into something unique, which is um, how Muslims have, be have entered this conversation around COVID. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon that serves as another example of how conversations around Islam are framed for us rather than by us. And there are many angles to this. Now, I'm going to pick apart all of them, inshallah, um, in this session. Um, the juicy political considerations, which ultimately uh, will result from everything that we're experiencing today, will be for the subsequent video, inshallah. Uh, look... On the issue of COVID itself, we need to take this seriously. Um, we need to state that unequivocally. It is a matter of life and death, um, and there should be no doubt into the matter. Um, irrespective of anyone's opinions on the origins um, of this virus or how it manifests itself, um, you know, I don't want to use words like conspiracists um, and conspiracy theories, but irrespective of our opinions on 
how it emerged and why it emerged, the fact is it is here and it is uh, deadly. Um, it is fatal. It does not discriminate, um, not based on age, gender. Um, it does not respect national boundaries. It does not respect any artificial um, borders that we placed amongst us. Not our attitudes on life, not our views on politics, not particular sex or madhabs uh, to which we adhere, nothing. Um, it is a global pandemic um, and it's frightening because uh, we have still yet to understand precisely how it uh, functions. Um, and as soon as we think we're getting close uh, to understanding the phenomenon, um, you know, viruses like this have an ability to morph themselves and has already demonstrated its capacity to morph itself. Um, so it seems to be, at this point in time, uh, two steps ahead of us. Um, we need to be entirely vigilant and take this responsibi responsibility very seriously because it's a phenomenon that can explode exponentially. Um, it's not like a common flu, as some people suggest, um, and, and I'm not interested in that particular aspect of the discussion. But the fact that um, it can explode exponentially and it can affect a significant number and the fatality rates around that, whether on a generic level or whether you zero in to particular age groups or those who have some form of, um, uh, who are already compromised from an Im Im immunology point of view, um, the death rates are phenomenal. Um, and if these matters uh, replicate themselves exponentially, um, then we can only imagine the horrors that will await us, may God forbid. I wanted to stress that because Islam stresses about the sanctity of life. Um, this is no small consideration. We don't work on the basis of um, pragmatism. We don't make judgments about who should live and who should die uh, willy-nilly. Uh, we don't take the matter uh, lightly. Um, even in instances where uh, life and death is a reality, i.e. war, very, there are very strict, very strict and rigid uh, considerations in Islam about the taking of life or about the risking of life. And if that happens in, in exceptional circumstances like war and conflict, uh, what then can we say in instances where that is not the reality in times of peace, uh, quote-unquote? Uh, we need to respect the sanctity that Islam places over life and therefore we all have a direct and immediate responsibility based on the, the best advice available at any given point in time to do everything in our capacity uh, to stop the spread of this disease consciously, uh, willingly or unwillingly. Um, there is a clear Islamic principle about um, uh, on the question of reciprocation. There is no harm and no reciprocated harm. Uh, this is a classic Islamic principle established a millennia ago. Um, we cannot exacerbate a phenomenon that will result in either um, difficulty um, or impairment or worse than that, death. And the fact is, this is precisely the advice of the Prophet wasallam in relation to plagues. Um, you know, we need to accept and take on the advice of the Prophet ﷺ in seeking 
uh, cures and preventions for all illnesses. And that includes, of course, plagues. Um, this is a matter that was addressed by the Prophet ﷺ in his time. This was a phenomenon experienced at the time of the companions, may Allah be pleased with them. And this is a phenomenon that was experienced previously for our Islamic history. This is not new to us. And so our, our ability to respond, our capacity to respond, and our willingness to respond has already been dictated to us by the Prophet ﷺ and of course through the consensus of the Sahaba, may Allah be pleased with them all. So in this sense, we need to appreciate the advice of the Prophet ﷺ in seeking both cure and prevention. And at the same time, um, Islam informs us how we should view these phenomena in any case. So it's not just a matter of understanding what COVID is or understanding the issue of viruses, understanding the issue of plagues. It's about framing our conception of that in light of Islam. And that's what distinguishes us as Muslims. So the Prophet ﷺ said in one hadith, and it's in Bukhari, uh, the translation is, if you hear that a plague is in a land, do not enter it. And if it happens in a land where you are, then do not leave. Right? Let me repeat that again. If you hear that a plague is in a land, do not enter it. If it happens in a land where you are, then do not leave it. This is what we call today um, you know, isolation or restricted movement. Um, if you happen to be in a place where uh, a plague has broken out, uh, then we have a responsibility to minimize or eliminate uh, the movement of people who are affected by those conditions. And that means those who are affected by it, meaning not necessarily directly, but those who are in the place where it has exploded need to remain there. And obviously the implication is we should not be um, you know, neglectful in our, in our ability and, and ignorant of our ability to carry this un, uh, unknowingly. And so we should be restricting our movements immediately. Now in the time of the Prophet wasallam and the companions, it was very obvious about the implications of such advice. And that's, of course, we didn't live at that time in a globalized world in the way that we imagine it today. Uh, the idea of uh, hopping on a plane and in four hours being on another continent um, and in 12 hours being on the other side of the planet and this happening regularly and commercially and it being like a, us catching a train to work, for instance, uh, that was not the reality back then. And so the idea of um, static movement was a phenomenon whose advice was clearly obvious. But the problem for us today is the fact that we live in a globalized world where we're interconnected in every sense of the word. Um, and transportation and travel is a key component of that. And that's why, of course, whilst the COVID-19 may have originated in one location, um, it very quickly became a problem for all of us. But nonetheless, the broad principles are still applicable, and that is, if we are afflicted by this, then we should not, um, you know, we should limit m the movement of those who are affected by it directly and indirectly. Um, another hadith of the Prophet wasallam on this issue is that, you know, quote, the one who is ill shall not meet the healthy. I mean, again, it's about containment. It's about eliminating the possibility of transmission. So the sick one should not be in contact with the healthy one and the healthy one should not be in contact with the sick one. And this is specific to issues like, like viruses and like plagues. Um, for those illnesses that are easily transmitted um, and are passed on through transmission.
we need to seek the advice of the Prophet ﷺ because they are, of course, um, the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are in, in the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who created us, our immune systems, our apprehensions, knows um, what we're going to feel and how we're going to be inclined at any particular point in time and knows in instances of, of plagues um, that fear is going to be a dominant emotion, apprehension is going to be a dominant emotion. And of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the words of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam addresses those core human emotions. Um, and seeks to manage them in a way that preserves, to the extent possible, the sanctity of life. But there's a certain attitude we need to carry in respect of this entire conversation, and that is exemplified through the words of another hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. And this is an instance where Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, asked the Prophet ﷺ about, about plagues. And he responded in this way. And there are, there are a couple of hadith on this issue, but this is one of them. He said, It is a punishment that Allah sends upon whoever He wills. But Allah has made it a mercy for the believers. Any servant who resides in a land afflicted by plague, remaining patient and hoping for reward from Allah, knowing that nothing will befall him but what Allah has decreed, he will be given the reward of a martyr. These are the words of the Prophet. So there's a certain attitude that should inform. Um, our views around um, pandemics um, and illnesses in general. But, if, but specifically on issues that generally you would find if we were not dictated by the shara, if we allowed ourselves to be overrun by our emotions, if we um, morphed into individuals who were more concerned about themselves than others, than the collective, then it would be a disaster. Everyone would be seeking to save themselves and inevitably we would all destroy ourselves in the process. But these matters and anything that afflicts a believer can be a test or a punishment. Um, but at the same time, it can be an opportunity to earn the rewards and the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So much so that in instances like this, and there are a couple other categories that are exemplified in another hadith, but in instances like this, if we remain patient, having true faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, believing that nothing will touch us except that which was written for us, and of course, the broad Islamic principle, we understand that everything that happens to us, only Allah truly knows the good and bad in it. We remain patient, hoping for Allah's reward, knowing that nothing will touch us except what Allah has written for us, then the reward of that is as if we will die the death of a martyr. So we will have the rewards equivalent to the rewards of a martyr. And of course, this is something that you could not find higher in Islam. These are attitudes that inform, inform our, our view of these things. Uh, whilst we need to take these things seriously, and we took it seriously, we, we, both, uh, we, we asked and, and of course Ramzi offered to be cautionary to treat the matter seriously, even though there is no indication that it's anything remotely connected to what is transpiring today. But as, as a demonstration of our seriousness on this issue, and of course for the sake of self-preservation, um, something very small, like just fatigue, tiredness, um, was enough for, for all of us to agree that it would be best if we did not um, come in contact with each other um, for, for the purpose of this discussion.
Um, and so anything that happens to us, if we remain patient, we're not going to get overwhelmed as Muslims. Whatever happens to us, we have simple responses that on the surface seem quite simplistic, but if we understand its true meaning, um, is profoundly uh, deep um, and, and, in, and inspirational. Simple expressions like whatever happens to us, we say, Alhamdulillah. A simple word like that, we can carry the burdens of the world. No matter what is thrown to us, no matter what is thrown upon us, and we know that. We know what the Ummah has experienced. And many times I, I think about this issue and I think if any other peoples uh, suffered what the Muslims have suffered in the last century or two, um, you know, in such a sustained fashion, on such a, um, uh, an enormous uh, scale, an industrial scale, um, that was not just about the material component where it's about economic subjugation or political subjugation, but the, you know, the essence of what it means to be a Muslim had been equally targeted, um, then I would imagine you know, we would not have anything comparable to what exists in the Muslim world today. But yet we're still here. And yet we're still fighting back, stronger than ever. We reached our depths many, many decades ago, and, we've, you know, and the curve is moving in an entirely different direction. But that's, big, that's the nature of Islam. That's the nature of tawakkul. That's the nature of believing in qadr. That's the nature of uh, accepting life as a test. Um, it, it allows you uh, to respond to things in ways which are incomparable to any other um, civilization. Right? When Allah subhanahu wa says very, very simply, Okay, we, we understand him. Like in its essence, that Allah created us for the purpose of testing us to see who is going to, who is going to be best, who will respond to the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who will respond to the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who will uh, be patient with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places before him, etc. Knowing, of course, that if we endure this patiently, um, and of course, if we do what is asked of us materially, then the rewards will be, if not in this life, then in the next. And for us, it's very simple for us. Very, very simple for us. We don't develop cavalier attitudes. We don't become relaxed about things. But at the same time, we don't um, overwhelm ourselves to the extent that it becomes debilitating. That's the opposite. The concepts in Islam like tie your camel, which is another hadith, a reference to another hadith, that we do what is asked of us. You know, if, if, we, if we confront a plague or an illness, then, yeah, we've got to understand the issue. We have to respond medically. We have to respond uh, politically. We have to respond economically, whatever it takes to respond. But in the end, we say that the matter is in Allah's hands. Same thing. We have colonialism in the Muslim world. We have everything that has afflicted the Muslim world. We do what we have to do in response to all of that. But in the end, the matter is in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hands. The concept of Nusra. We do what is asked of us. We put every effort. We seek to mobilize and push. In the end, the matter is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we say that in every aspect of our life. And that allows us to subdue our emotions to the point where it does not overwhelm us. Easier said than done. We have to train ourselves to, to be like that. Um, but it's an important reminder so we don't go further than what is required um, and get ourselves in trouble in the sense that we overstep the marks or the line that Allah subhanahu has drawn for us. We don't use it as an excuse to start doubting our belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or you know, asking why has Allah punished you know, why has Allah punished why is Allah punishing us like this? Or why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unfair in this respect by inflicting us with this? We don't ask these questions. Um, even though the temptation may be there. But we correct ourselves. You know, it's, uh, in the end, we're humans. and We have our high moments. We have our weak moments. And we need to acknowledge that. 
um, you know, I you know I speak to a lot of young children, for instance, and you know they exhibit a, a degree of apprehension, you know, but uh, it needs to be responded to on their level, and this happens with adults as well. Um, it's not to deny it, but at the same time, not allow us to be overwhelmed by it. Now, the funny thing is with Muslims, and I, let me just take the conversation in another direction. Um, you know, in the context of COVID, it's actually fascinating how. Uh, Muslims have been dragged into this conversation or how Islam has been dragged into this conversation. Never do you find in the context of COVID-19 conversations about, you know, Muslims leading uh, science and discovery. Um, Muslims are on the brink of uh, finding a cure or developing vaccines or Muslims are leading the world um, in response to COVID-19 are setting the example for the rest of us. It's not like that. Um, and it hasn't been like that for a long time for any issue on a small scale or on a global scale. And obviously that's a consequence of our disempowerment, um, which is, of course, a conversation for the following um, discussion, inshallah. Um, but there's a con- the concept of the good Muslim continually rears its head in various different ways. And one aspect of this, and it's funny because this is the only instance in which Islam is being dragged or allowed to be part of this conversation. You know, the good Muslim exhibits, exhibits himself in two ways or has exhibited himself in two ways in the context of COVID-19. And the first is, of course, um, a, you know, constant references to um, Islam's position on hygiene. And either we've taken that upon ourselves to demonstrate um, how... Um, rightly or wrongly, um, if we all applied Islam's standards of personal hygiene um, and Islam's uh, standards on food stuff and what's allowable and what's not, for instance, then we would never have been in this situation. Now, forget for the moment whether this is right or wrong. But the point for me is, well, is this all that Islam um, allows? Is this all that Islam represents? You know, and, and the Qafar have been happy with this. You know, it's not Muslims necessarily making this point. A lot of non-Muslims have made this point again and again, as if to suggest, you know, now they're in favor of Sharia. You know, at least this aspect of Sharia. And this is the problem, of course, that, there, you know, we start to compartmentalize in our Islam to the extent that, you know, there are good aspects of Islam and bad aspects of Islam. And those good aspects, which are defined as good not by us, not by Islam, but by non-Muslims, are celebrated, um, and we see this being played out. And, of course, some of us feel good about that because any publicity is good publicity. And, of course, we're used to Islam being bombarded, Muslims being bombarded with negative attention, and we welcome the opposite. But we need to realize this is a double-edged sword, that this is not an affirmation of your Islam. This is not a validation of your Islam. Um, This, in fact, is a direct attack on your Islam, because they're telling you that there are aspects of Islam to, with which they agree and like, and there are aspects, you know, and, and the logical conclusion is there are aspects which they don't. Um, but never would we accept as Muslims for our Islam to be measured or subjected to something other than Islam. You know, it does not seek the praise of others, right, without the, the acceptance of it, right? So it stands independently, it's self-referential. Um, and we need to be clear about that. The other aspect of the good Muslim, funny enough, is how you know, some Muslim responses um, have been intimately tied to our loyalty and commitment to this country. And it's really funny because it seems like we're the only ones doing it. And we're the only ones celebrating it. 
again, it's this constant need for self-validation, um, which, of course, becomes self-defeating. To the extent that, you know, some Muslims were arguing some positions or recommending some policy responses that not even the government was, was exceeding what even the government was asking of us. Um, and when you think about it, you think, what drives a Muslim, um, you know, to do more to curtail Islam and our practice of Islam um, more than what even the government is asking us. Um, and if we are honest with ourselves, and I'm trying to be as respectful as possible in communicating this, if we are honest with ourselves, then we should ask, why do we feel the need um, to go out of our way to demonstrate our loyalty to this country? And, and, and as a consequence of that, you know, the position of Islam in this country. Um, we need to really seriously question that, um, especially if we are, um, you know, going further than what is even asked of us, just to demonstrate a point. But another aspect of this is, well, you know, this issue of COVID and Muslim responses to it have brought up uh, the question of ijtihad in the modern era. Um, and, you know, from the days of, you know, the classical era, the late, late classical era where, you know, euphemistically, it's phrased as the, the period in which the doors of ijtihad were closed. Uh, not literally, but, you, you know, metaphorically. And, and the consequence of that is the level of Islamic, um, you know, ijtihad, uh, fiqh and sciences behind it and whatnot, um, reflected poorly um, because of the condition of the Muslims, meaning they were not of the standard of the cl early classical scholars um, and clearly not the standard at the time of the companions and the tabi'in and what came after them. It's a reference to the gradual degradation of Islamic scholarship. But interestingly, on the issue of COVID, we've seen almost to some extent a, a renewed interest or a revival of the concept of ijtihad because the nature of ijtihad is there's something we, we confront, we all confront, which we've never previously confronted. And this means we need to dig into Islam um, to take a position on it, either to solve the problem or to frame the problem or whatever it is. Um, but with, with issues like plagues and illnesses and viruses or anything to do with the material, uh, the prerequisite of ijtihad or the first element of ijtihad is to understand the issue itself. Um, so we need to be clear about what COVID-19 is. We need to be clear about the science behind it. We need to be clear about how it develops, how it morphs, how it transmits, etc. But the problem for Muslims is that for a long, long time, um, we have been absent, by and large, I don't say that in absolute terms, but by and large, we've been absent from uh, the question of knowledge production. You know, and in a nutshell, what that means is what we understand as expertise on this issue predominantly is not coming from Muslims. Now, normally that is not necessarily a problem. You know, if it's an issue of science, it's an issue of medicine, we can take knowledge from whatever its source. But given the reality of capitalism and how it functions and how it monopolizes knowledge and how it produces knowledge and the implications of that in terms of the filters that uh, influence the outcomes of those knowledge processes... Um, then we have a serious dilemma because there needs to be a question mark placed over what is at any point in time considered expert knowledge. Um, and we know that very clearly. For, for a long, long time, um, you know, big companies knew 
the dangers of tobacco, for instance, but we've held that and continued selling tobacco. Um, you know, big companies knew the dangers of asbestos, for instance, um, but continued selling its products knowingly. Um, you know, um, for a long time, we held a particular view on sugar, for instance, versus fat. Um, and what was considered, you know, expert knowledge has been turned on its head. And it's a constantly revolving process. Um, no one should take from this that we should doubt all knowledge or we should have a reason to doubt all expertise. But in the absence of an ability for Muslims to, you know, check, um, verify, counter and produce their own independent uh, knowledge and expertise, then we're forever going to be beholden to a form of knowledge production which is not entirely pure. And that's a very nice way to describe it. Um, but I, I mean more than that. Um, so our understanding of the COVID in this case ultimately rests on um, expertise that has been borrowed. Um, and we should place question marks over that because historically, time and time again, um, there has always been a case to um, doubt or at the very least place question marks over the authenticity and reliability of um, often what is presented as expertise. Now, we don't have, in immediate terms, an ability to do anything about that in any meaningful way. Um, that's a broader consideration which will be addressed in the following talk. Um, but if we're going to take the issue of Ijtihad, which fundamentally relies on expert knowledge, um, and it's going to factor in that expert knowledge. Now, Ijtihad is not beholden to science and beholden to expertise, but it factors it. And there are elements, you know, depending on the issue where the primary determinant is expertise. You know, the primary shari response or the primary shari determinant is wholly dependent on expertise, um, not necessarily text. Um, and so this places a very unique conundrum for Muslims, um, given, our, given the centrality of expertise, but our detachment from it. But nonetheless, uh, we've done our best to place our hands over the issue, even though it's developing, even though we don't fully understand it. Um, but we've done our best. And it's, I raise this point because... It's a conscious attempt to lift the standard of ijtihad in a way that we don't necessarily see or have necessarily seen before in, in our time. And that's a good thing. I'm raising that as a good thing. But to have confidence in ijtihad, it needs to have its other elements too. And those elements fundamentally are clear, detailed evidences from the shara. The opposite of that are blanket, generalized statements. Now, on some issues, there may be only broad principles, which in themselves are established through text. Right? They are, they are a reflection of the totality of the shara. That's what maqasid is. But in and of itself, maqasid and broad principles are not an evidence for us. We need ayat and a hadith. In this matter, um, it just happens to be that re broadly relying on principles like Islam, or, uh, you know, sanctifies life, uh, the preservation of life. Um, just happens to achieve or arrive at the same conclusion you would if you used direct textual evidences. It just happens to result in the same conclusion. And that's why at this point we may not necessarily, may not necessarily see a problem with it. 
but various attempts to take a position on COVID-19 have ultimately re- re- uh, relied on, Maqar um, said, broad principles, uh, which, if tested against particularities, would not stand. So we cannot take broad principles like Islam seeks the preservation of life as an evidence in and of itself to prevent the taking of all life. We know that that's not true because there are many crimes in Islam that, Islam's, uh, that Islam considers capital crimes um, and institutes capital punishments, for instance. Um, at the same time, Islam in some instances um, you know, justifies um, armed conflict and that's going to result in the loss of life. So as a broad principle, we can't rely on it as an evidence in and of itself. Um, what we do in Ijtihad is rely on specific textual evidences, and if we don't find that, we go find, look for an indirect text. And if we don't find that, which is a bit of a stretch, we refer to broad principles. Um, but again, we don't see the, we may not necessarily see the significance of this today, because the conclusion of both in this particular issue is still the same. But I raise it because imagine later on. Uh, this, you know, the government turns around to us and says, look, um, on the basis of s- the opinion of security experts, again, the question of expertise, and this is expertise which they've developed, of which we cannot independently verify or challenge or have an ability to confront on the same level or produce on the same level. Um, imagine if they came to us and said, on the basis of security expertise, which they have tried in some countries, we need to ban the niqab. Um, this represents a security risk. Uh, you know, this is a danger to, um, you know, in the context of terrorism, a danger to, to human life. And if we applied the same broad principles about the sanctity of life, the position of life in Islam, um, then we can easily see how this is going to become problematic. Um, conversely, other instances where this has been misapplied, for instance, has been uh, various fatwas to justify the presence or the actions of various tyrants in the Muslim world um, to prevent Muslims opposing them. Um, we've had conversations around Islam's position on the sanctity of life. And so if you were to face a tyrant, then one of its potential consequences is them um, taking your life. Now, the intention here is not to... Um, you know, provide an, a detailed exposition of the nature of ijtihad in Islam, but to raise certain questions around ijtihad, which, you know, uh, they, are, they are questions which we need to ask, ask more seriously, and they're conversations which we are going to have to entertain much more seriously, because the implications of getting them wrong are very severe. And our experience in the Muslim world shows that very clearly. There are many fatwas and many opinions which justify the worst atrocities, um, but the process in which... Um, these fatwas are developed, uh, rely on the um, the exploitation or the, the stretching of the, the boundaries of ijtihad. Um, and, I, and I alluded to some of them a moment ago. Um, if we are going to establish confidence in the, uh, the fatwas that we produced and in the opinions we produced, the other element is we must be consistent in the application of our principles, our usul. Um, we can't, in some instances, rely on pragmatism, and in other instances, rely on textual evidences, and in other instances, rely on broad principles. There has to be a clear foundation upon which we arrive at Islamic opinions, and we need to be consistent about that. Um, this is not a, an argument to say we got it right or got it wrong. 
But if we want to move the Muslim community in response to something, uh, we need to develop, you know, we need to enable Muslims to have confidence in the opinions that we develop. Um, and if we are going to have confidence, if we're going to establish that level of confidence, then we need to be clear about the processes of ijtihad and what it relies upon. And I think a lot of opinions that have been expressed um, to date um, could do with a lot more tightening, specifically from the angle of ensuring confidence in them. Not necessarily because the conclusions are wrong, but from, in, uh, from, a st- uh, from the point of view of establishing um, confidence in those opinions. Now, I want to mention one last thing, um, just as a closing remark, and it's still related to the issue of ijtihad. Um, and I want to throw this out there because it's a conversation which won't be settled today, but I want to throw it out there because it's a conversation we need to be carrying. And that is the relationship of the Muslim community with secular power. Um, we may not see the point again today because it just happens that the positions which a lot of us have expressed, a lot of the ulama have expressed, um, are consistent with what um, would be the, 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 the position in Islam in any era on an issue like the plague, on the issue like viruses. But what concerns me is the ease with which we've applied certain principles to this particular reality and the ease with which we've sought concessions um, given the reality of COVID-19. You know, a simple example is um, we know, we all know, we have to do what we can to prevent the transmission of this disease. And if that requires an element of social isolation, if that requires an element of social distancing, then we have to do that. And if that's what expertise tells us, then we have to do that. Um, But the government itself uh, drew a demarcation between essential and non-essential. And a lot of things were were closed down um, with the argument that we need to stop the transmission. But some things weren't. But the argument, the difference was one was defined as essential and another wasn't. The question for us as a community is, um, can we accept for the government to define for us uh, what is essential in our deen and what isn't? Now, the conclusion may not necessarily be indifferent. And let me state this very clearly. Um, because I would argue, and, and a lot of all have argued, and I've seen only a minority of opinions um, point to the contrary, that there is no problem with the closing of masjids if that's what the situation demands. Uh, we know in the, in the example of the Pro- in the time of the Prophet um, that you know uh, Muslims were were offered the concession, were given the concession not to approach the masjid um, for something less than COVID nineteen. You know, it was just a big storm, um, and we know at the time of Omar radiallahu anhu when when he confronted a uh, a plague in his era. Um, that the movement and practices of Muslims were severely restricted. Now, the details of that um, will depend on time and place and circumstance, and, and in a lot of ways will reflect the expertise as well. Um, you know, there's a blanket rule of isolation, a, bl- a blanket rule, you know, a basic, a blanket Islamic rule of isolation and, and separation, and that's the advice of the Prophet sallallahu um, But if science and, 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 and knowledge comes and tells us that, it, it, you know, f- uh, plague spread in particular ways or this particular virus spreads in particular ways and what may have worked in one instance may not necessarily work in another instance there's no problem with that Islamically but my contention here is um, why have we so readily and so easily allowed the government to define for us what is regarded as essential for us 
Now, everyone has, and I've, I said this from, from the get-go, we all have a responsibility to take this issue seriously. We all have a responsibility uh, to do everything in our capacity to stop the spread of this disease, and we're all personally responsible for that. And that's a shari, um, that's a shari um, argument. But to allow the government to establish that for us um, on a basis other than the shara itself um, is going to be a problem for us. Because it may not necessarily be an issue this time. But imagine later on, it says for some other uh, form of necessity uh, that it restricts another aspect of our Islam. Um, and say the Shara disagrees with that. Um, are we going to allow a secular authority to define for us what is essential and what is not? What is consensual and what is not? What is obligatory and what is not? Um, and this is going to be a problem for us if we're not very particular about how we exercise ijtihad here. It's not uh, you know, the role of secular institutions to dictate to us what is and isn't Islamic. Um, and we should be very careful about this point because there will come a time where this will become a problem for us if we accept that hierarchy. Now, at the end of the day, that does not mean... Um, you know, we can do whatever we want and whenever we want. It means that there are some things we have to fight for and we should fight for and we should not allow to pass easily because once we set certain precedents, they're very difficult to reverse. And in, in the issue of COVID, although the conclusion may have been correct, um, that it is a right to do whatever we can, um, you know, to, to assist the effort to stop the spread of this disease, the ease with which we've accepted that, and importantly, the basis upon which you've accepted that uh, needs to be questioned, needs to be interrogated, because although we may not see its implications on this issue, we will definitely feel its implications on other issues. So there's a certain hierarchy in place which we need to be aware of. There are certain impositions on our community and on our practice of Islam that we need to be aware of. Um, and these impositions, these pressures if we allow them to continue, if we don't disrupt that hierarchy, will, in a very, very um, short while, in a very easy way, become a very big problem for us. So I wanted to throw these issues out there. Um, they are points of discussion which need to be entertained in the community. They are serious. Um, but this is COVID from one angle. Our broad perspectives on it from the Islamic point of view, our perspectives on plagues, our perspective on tests and trials in life, and some of the issues related to uh, the Islam and the Muslim community in relation to this and in response to this. Um, the next discussion will look more broadly about the geopolitical implications of COVID-19, reflections on what, it's, what it says about the international order, um, what it says about the shifting lines of that international order, where it has the ability to redraw those lines, um, and of course, entertain some discussion around, um, you know, origins, purposes, political exploitation, um, failings of government, um, and us being co-opted into those failures. Um, so these are discussions which will ensue uh, with the next conversation, inshallah. But for the purpose of this conversation, I hope that, um, you know, it serves as an inspiration for a, a conversation that continues in the community. These are not small issues. These issues are not going away. COVID itself is not going away anytime soon. 
Um, we need to play our role. We need to take our role seriously, um, but we need to to do so on a basis that ultimately pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And on that note, I'll conclude here inshallah. Barakallahu feekum again for, for, view, uh, for viewing in and tuning in. Inshallah, I hope it was of some benefit. Uh, and may the conversation continue inshallah. From me for now, I say assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi.